Well, thank you so much to everyone who is here this morning, music team and those on the tech department, everybody was able to make it in. We understand that in typical PEI fashion, a storm for two days and clean up for three. And uh, so we understand that many of you are watching from home this morning and we're grateful uh, that you're able to do that as well. As was mentioned, take your Bibles then, if you would, over to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus and the second chapter, Leviticus chapter 2. And this morning we want to look in more detail at the grain offering, this offering of uh, part of the harvest, uh, oftentimes connected with offerings of atonement, but another voluntary offering, the offering of grain to the Lord. We want then this morning to talk about this idea of thanksgiving. And I'm sure after the storm over the weekend and those that were struggling to shovel and these types of things, that this particular topic is probably the last one that you want to address this morning or have me address. Uh, there were certainly times yesterday when I would uh, be right there with you. Let's not look at this topic. Let's look at something else but here we are this morning, and we want to be people of gratitude, be people that are thankful to God for all that comes at his good and gracious hand. And we need to be reminded of this, uh, perhaps especially so in our culture, in our day and age, uh, because oftentimes the things that we have, we have because we believe uh, we have earned them, uh, we have worked hard for them. And so it is uh, not often on our lips that we give thanks to God for our daily bread. Uh, we have food, oftentimes in abundance, uh, oftentimes well in advance. And if the grocery store is any indication, when there is a forecast of a storm, uh, we are well supplied when these things uh, happen. And, yet, and so we don't oftentimes think about the connection between what we have and what God has provided for us and the fact that it comes at his good hand. And so thanksgiving is not always and perhaps even not often on our minds. But this offering uh, brings our attention then to this, this idea of thanksgiving. There is so much here and uh, we look forward to diving in. So Leviticus chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 and then verses 11 through 13. Verses 4 through 10, similar to uh, the chapter 1, are reiterations of how to offer this offering other than the offering just of flour. And then verses 14 through 16 talk to us about the reality of first fruits, which we will look at here uh, somewhat in brief. First fruits has a uh, bigger treatment in the book of Leviticus later on. So follow along, if you would, in your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 11 through 13. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it, and put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil, with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Skipping down to verse 11. 
No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven, nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. This is the word of God. So as we looked last time we were together in the book of Leviticus, what does all this mean? What does all this look like? As mentioned, oftentimes in conjunction with a meat offering, an offering of atonement, an individual will bring part of the harvest. And so what is described in verses 1 through 3 is the fine flour offering. So this is a harvest that has been harvested, and the grain has been turned into flour. And again, in the Hebrew, it is a fine flour. This is the best. As we mentioned last time, God does not look for our leftovers. This is the best that they can offer. And we are not told specific amounts, although elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we get the sense that it could be anywhere between 16 to 18 cups of flour. So not an insignificant amount of flour is brought. With it, they are to bring oil, most probably olive oil, and then some frankincense. This is an aromatic perfume that is very costly. It was one of the three gifts presented to Jesus by those from the east. And these three elements then are brought to Aaron's sons, the priests. From the full offering, Aaron or one of his sons, the priests, would take a handful of that flour, add to it the oil, and then on top of that the frankincense. And these three things would be burned on the offering as a thanksgiving offering to God. Thankful for the harvest that has been brought in, at least the first part of it. Thankful for God's provision. Thankful for who God is and what he has done. Also a thankfulness for God's covenant with his people. That indeed, in connection with an atonement offering, atonement had been made for the worshiper, and in gratitude for that, he offers this offering of fine flour, oil, and frankincense. This part of the offering, then, the handful of flour is offered, burned on the offering with the oil and the frankincense as a memorial offering, as a remembrance offering, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment. And then note that the rest of the grain offering is given to Aaron and his sons, the priests. It is a most holy part of the Lord's offerings. In the language of Leviticus, this is, again, the most holy. You have the holy place in the tabernacle and then the holy of holies. This is a most holy offering. This could only be eaten by Aaron and his sons, the priests, in the tabernacle, on the tabernacle grounds, only by them and only in this place. This could not be shared with family members and could not be eaten anywhere other than in the tabernacle compound. It is a most holy offering to the Lord and doubles as sustenance for the priests. What follows in verses 4 through 10 are different ways that this offering could be brought. It could be t the flour could be taken and it could be cooked in different ways. It could be baked in the oven, similar to our bread, although without yeast, and so it would be unleavened bread, it would be flat bread of some kind. It could be fried in a frying pan or on a griddle, so again, what we would know as nan bread or flat bread, a pita perhaps, 
or it could be in a, uh, a larger pan or a pot, I should say, oil in the pot and dropped in as sort of dollops of dough and almost like what we would know as a donut. So however it was cooked, this flour offering, this grain offering could also be brought to the Lord in cooked form and also burned on the altar with, with oil. And uh, then a part of that then would also go to the priests. And then in verses 14 through 16, they bring the first part of the harvest, the first fruits. They crush the grain, they roast it with fire, and then they put oil and frankincense on it and offer it to the Lord again as a thanksgiving offering for his provision for them and his covenant with them. So what I want to focus on this morning then is, as we did last time, the grain offering, and then in particular verses 11 through 13, because there's additional instructions given. There are some ingredients that are prohibited from being offered as a burnt offering on the altar, and then there is one ingredient that, ingredient that always must be there, and that is intriguing, and we want to see what that is all about. And so quickly then in point one, we see that the, this offering is often offered with atoning offerings. It is rarely offered as a standalone offering. It is often offered in conjunction with the burnt offering that we saw from last week or the peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, these meat offerings, blood offerings. It is not a standalone offering uh, uh, often. It is also, in verse 1, voluntary. When anyone brings a grain offering, as we mentioned last week, no one is precluded. This word anyone is a catch-all word for the nation of Israel, for the people of the nation of Israel Anyone can bring this, and you also notice there's different formats it can be brought in. It can be brought in fine flour, which is the primary format. Same with the burnt offering, a full bull, a full cow. Uh, but here there's different ways you can bring it. You can bring it uh, in cooked format in different ways. So no one is precluded from bringing this offering. Anyone, regardless of how much money they have, uh, how much harvest they brought in, can bring this offering, this grain offering to the Lord. And so it is open to all. In the, th in the fourth place then, under this idea of great offering, we want to key in on that word memorial. The part that is burned on the altar is the memorial portion. What is going on here? It is the portion of remembrance. And part of this could be asking God to remember the worshiper and remember the covenant that God has made with the worshiper. And I think that that is the main part of this. Not that God forgets. God doesn't say, oh, who are you? He doesn't forget us, and we'll see that in a moment in verse 13 in particular. But it is to call to remembrance the promises that God has made to us. We, as has been prayed in the prayer of confession, cannot stand before God on our own merits. We have no righteousness on our own. We cannot come into God's presence with our own righteousness, which we do not have. And so we can only come into God's presence based on a sacrifice, as we noted last time. Life must be given so that we can retain ours. Without the sacrifice of blood of life, we who are dead men walking would die, especially in God's presence. So death must occur so that life can continue. And in thanksgiving for that, and in calling that to God's remembrance, this handful of flour or part of the cooked grain offering is burnt on the altar with the oil, and in most cases with the frankincense, is a pleasing aroma to God, calling to remembrance his covenant that he made with the worshiper. 
It also is a memorial for the worshiper to remember what God has done on their behalf. So that as they offer this, they understand that although they planted the seed, they weeded the garden, they fertilized, they did all of these things, they harvested, yes, there is effort here. Their atonement is not based on their human effort. We cannot atone for our sins. And so even the strength to harvest the grain, even the strength to plant the grain, the favorable conditions of sun and water and soil and all of these things, all of these things are good gifts from God. And so this all comes in his hand and keeps the worshiper in the right frame of mind so that they are not coming with the bounty that they believe they have procured for themselves and saying, God, look at all the stuff that I am giving to you, but no, they are remembering that they can only come because what, of what God has done for them. And so it is an offering, a memorial offering, an offering of remembrance. Notice it is also then an offering of thanksgiving. They are to pause before they consume this grain themselves, before they reserve all this grain for themselves. And as we looked last time at the burnt offering, they are to give the first part of this, the best part of this, to God. It is his anyway. It's all his. And as an act of thanksgiving, they give this first part of the harvest to God to remind themselves that all things come from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, James says. And so all of this is from God. It is one of the reasons I believe that we pray before a meal. For many of us, this has become perfunctory. We pray at least three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and supper. And many of us aren't sure why we do it, and oftentimes our prayers sound the same when we do it, but the reality is it has a deeper meaning. It ought to bring us into remembrance that even this food we are about to eat, even our daily provision, our moment-by-moment -moment provision comes from God, and we are thankful for it. We are not saying that we did all the work, it's all about us. We are grateful to God for health, for family, for food, for all of these things. It is a way to thank God for this. But you'll notice that added to the flour or the cooked version of this, there is oil and frankincense. We are not told directly in this passage why that is the case, but it is the case throughout Scripture that oil and frankincense are oftentimes symbolic of joy. You do notice that this makes it a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I think there's more than to thanksgiving than just begrudging duty. Yes, okay, thank you God for the harvest. I'll give you the, your first portion. Now I'll go back and make a meal for myself and enjoy it. Thanks God, but I got it from here. This isn't just a begrudging thing, a dutiful thing. No, this is a happy occasion. There is joy here and rejoicing in what God has done and the provision that he has given. And so Paul picks up on this in the New Testament where it says, God loves a cheerful giver. When we give our tithes and offerings and thanksgiving to God, even before we uh, eat a meal, it ought not to be just a duty that we perform, a, a perfunctory rite that we go through that is just begrudging and, and okay, we have to do this, or just tradition where the words that are coming out of our mouth, we've said them so many times when we say grace that we don't even know what we're saying anymore. It shouldn't be that. It should be an occasion of joy. God has given us another breath. He's given us another day. He's given us another meal. 
He's given us another harvest. God is with us in the midst of the weather, in the midst of disease, in the midst of everything that is going on. God is at work. God is providing for us. And he is giving us this day our daily bread. And so we thank him with joy, or we ought to, by the grace that he provides. The other elements added to this offering add to it the idea then of joyfulness, of of a great overwhelming sense from the worshiper of gratitude. Thank you, God, for who you are and for what you have done. And then the last place, I think that there is something in here in this offering of trust. Certainly with the idea of first fruits in verses 14 through 16, and again, the idea of first fruits is expanded on later in the book of Leviticus. When you bring the first part of your harvest to God, you must then trust him to bring in the rest. When you give the first part, so to speak, of your paycheck to the Lord on a weekly or biweekly basis, you are trusting him to provide to cover the rest of your expenses and your living. And there is a beauty in there. There is a reality in there that we are, we are thankful that God is giving us this day our daily bread, but we are also trusting that God will give us this day our daily bread. And so there is a great measure here that the nation of Israel, as they bring this offering, there could be blight or disease or mold, there could be a lack of rain, anything could happen after the first bit of the harvest. And so to bring in the first fruits, the best, the first, is to trust God that the rest will be sufficient, that God will indeed give us this day our daily bread. The nation of Israel is moving from a dependent culture and society where God is giving for them water, oftentimes, or at least on two occasions, directly from a rock where previously didn't exist, and also manna from the, from the heavens. Every morning, or I should say every evening, when the Jews went to sleep, they had to trust that the next morning when they woke up, there would be these wafers, these um, unleavened pieces of, of bread They taste like honey and coriander seed, they said. They called it, what is it, manna? that they would be there that morning. And God told them, if you gather more than you need for one day, in the morning there'll be maggots in it. You need to trust me every day for your daily bread. And you can imagine in our context, if every night when we went to sleep, the fridge and the cupboard was completely empty, and we had to trust that we woke up in the morning and opened the fridge door, there'd be food there. This is what God is trying to instill in his nation of Israel. And so as they move into the land of Canaan, as they plant crops, as they get settled in the land, This idea of trusting God daily for our daily provision needs to continue to be instilled in the nation of Israel, as it does with us. And so this grain offering also has this idea of trust. Now notice in the second place then this morning, there are are some specific ingredients mentioned, two of which are prohibited from the burnt part of this offering, and one which must be there. And so notice verse 11 and 12, what cannot be part of the burnt offering part of the memorial offering is either yeast or honey. And again, we are not told directly in the passage why it can't be there. We do know elsewhere that yeast, leaven, is looked upon by God as a picture of sin. That to add yeast into dough causes that sort of fermentation process. It's what we enjoy when we eat leavened bread, uh, uh, risen bread, but, but it, it contaminates the pure dough. And so it is a picture then of sinfulness, of contaminants in Scripture. 
Honey can act in a similar way added to the dough. And also, honey in the pagan cultures around the nation of Israel, or certainly once they get into the land of Canaan, was oftentimes used in offerings to pagan deities. So whether it was to, to uh, remove any contaminants or to prohibit any contaminants from the actual offering or to remind the nation of Israel that they were to be free from contaminants, these two ingredients, yeast and honey, are not allowed in this offering. This offering, again, was to be a pure offering, reminiscent of the purity of God and the holiness and righteousness of God. But what must be in every one of these offerings, and it's said three times in verse 13, season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing. With all your offerings, you must offer salt. What is going on here? This necessary ingredient of salt is a reminder of the preservation of God and the preservation of or the persevering power of the covenant of God with his nation of Israel. In Numbers 18, 19, the covenant that God makes with Israel is called a covenant of salt and it reappears in 2 Chronicles 13 where God says the covenant with David is also a covenant of salt. The, the, the near indestructibility of salt is brought in as a symbol of the indestructibility of the covenant of God with his people. So as they bring this offering, whether it's flour or cooked flour in some form, there must always be salt. And what is the picture of salt? Let the nation of Israel know. It reminds them that God's love for them never ends. His covenant with, with them is secure, that he will hold them fast. It is a continual reminder of the preserving power of God's covenant and the preservation of his love for them. His love for them will never end. And so as they come in thanksgiving to God, it is not just thanksgiving for their daily provisions, but thanksgiving for his love for them, a love for them that is unconditional and will never end. So this element must always be there in their offerings. In the third place then this morning, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, it is interesting that again, Jesus as the grain offering, he references himself or refers to himself as the bread of life. In John's gospel, he says, as bread came down from heaven in the time of Moses, he is the bread of life in John 6. And so, when we gather for communion, you know that there's two elements to the Lord's table. We, it makes sense to us, perhaps, the fruit of the vine. Uh, it makes sense to us, this picture of blood. But why the bread? Why the unleavened bread? It is also that a picture of the sinlessness of Christ, but is a picture of this grain offering. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the grain offering. It says that he not only offered his blood, but he also offered his body. He offered himself the bread of life for our sins. And so as we gather next Sunday, Lord willing, and have communion, whether here or with groups in homes, we will note that it is both Christ's sinless life and his precious body, his incarnated flesh, as well as his shed blood, his life for us, our sin on him and his righteousness on us, both these elements, the body and the blood, the bread and the wine, are part of this offering. And it is a picture then of this grain offering. Christ as the bread of life, offering himself to God on our behalf. 
We note well then that the Lord's Supper is also a memorial. It's a remembrance. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26 that we read every time we do communion, uh, pretty much, there's also appears in the Gospels. Uh, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. But, he's, but Jesus says, do this in why? Why are we doing this? In remembrance of me. Every time we partake of the unleavened bread, the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ, and a reminder that that is now ours, and every time we drink of the fruit of the vine, remembering his shed blood on our behalf, the penalty for our sin on him, it is a remembrance, a memorial. A memorial remembrance for us to remember what Christ has done for us and to thank God for it. And also a memorial and a remembrance to call to God's remembrance, not that he forgets, but to call to God's remembrance what he has done for us. God, we do not come to you based on our own merits. We come to you only because of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is also not only the fulfillment of the burnt offering, he's also the fulfillment of the grain offering. He, as the bread of life, shed his blood and offered his body, his incarnated flesh, on our behalf. It is also then an offering of uh, thanksgiving and an offering of trust. What does Jesus say in Luke 24, just as he is about to die? He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We read this last Sunday in the opening Psalm 31. Jesus trusted his Father. That is, he would die and be buried in the ground so he would be raised again to life from the dead. There is a, 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 an immense amount of trust in that statement and in Christ offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And there is all, also thanksgiving. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced. I know that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against the day of Jesus Christ. I know it. I stand firm, not in my own righteousness. I don't have any. But I stand firm in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he proved it on the cross. His righteousness, mine, the penalty for my sinfulness, his, all because of his love for me. But note that this goes even further. Because in the fourth place this morning, we want to see what is this about then, these prohibited and necessary ingredients. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 5, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 through 16, that you are the light of the world, and you are the salt of the earth. You are salt and light as you go out into the world. What does this have to do with this grain offering? Well, there's a lot to do with it, because notice the prohibited agreements of yeast and honey, we believe, had to do with sinfulness, impurities. And so as we are sons and daughters of the living God, as we are being transformed into God's image through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, we are to be light, we are to be purity, we are to be holy, we are to be righteous. The world is darkness. The world goes based on what they think, what they feel, what they want. They are driven by their desires and their passions. They are not tied to truth. They are not submissive to God and to his word. And so we who are are called to be light. And so in our lives, by Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, we are not to have the ingredients of yeast and honey. We are not to have these impurities of sin in our lives. We are to be free from those things. Now, we know that we cannot be on our own. And so thanks be to God for the grace that he provides in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sins 
we can, by His grace and with His power, we can gradually be transformed into children of light. We are children of light, and we will one day fully be children of light, and in that process in between, we are becoming more and more children of light. The impurities of this life are no longer staining us. They're no longer part of us. The things that we used to desire becomes less desirable to us. The ways that we used to think and behave are no longer the ways that we think and behave. The things that we used to want more than anything else are now... uh, paling in comparison to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. The, this is what God is doing in our lives. And then those salt. He says, Jesus says to disciples, you are the salt of the earth. We now are living proof each and every day of the covenant of God with us. Is God still at work in 2022 in the midst of all that's going on and all the craziness, in the midst of what seems to be more and more and more darkness? Does God still love us? Is God still here? Is God still committed to us? Yes. And if you need proof, look around at those who are part of Grace Baptist Church, who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you are the salt. You are living proof of God's continued covenant of love. He has not given up on us. He is building his church, as Jesus Christ said that he would, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so God's covenant with us is a sure covenant. It will be everlasting. It is everlasting. Because it is based on him and his love for us, we know and have great confidence that it is not shaky. It is not, maybe he loves us today, maybe tomorrow he's not quite uh, thrilled with us. No, God loves us, and the proof is in his people. We now, are the salt of this offering. We are this necessary ingredient, not because of anything that we have done, but because of Christ on our behalf. He is the great offering for us, and now we are the salt. God is still at work. God is transforming hearts and lives, and as he does, it continues to prove his ongoing love for his people and for people. And so what is our response then this morning, Grace Baptist? The response is that based on our trustworthy Father and out of gratitude for all He is and has done, let us reflect His character to all around us. We no longer need to bring grain offerings to God. Jesus Christ is the grain offering for us on our behalf. He offered His body on our behalf. He, the bread of life, has died in our place for our sins. And yet in the spirit of this offering... We ought to trust him. If we can trust him for our eternal soul, can we not trust him for our daily provision? And we ought to thank him repeatedly, consistently, and frequently for all that he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God that because of Jesus Christ, we are and are increasingly becoming more salt and light in this world. Because the impurities of sin are being purged from us, and because God's love rests always on us, we are then reminiscent of, and the fulfillment of, in a sense, these elements of the grain offering, Jesus Christ being the ultimate fulfillment of it. What a blessing it is to serve God through Christ by the Spirit. In the mundane, everyday run of life, we can and, and should and must, because of his grace, thank him, trust him, and serve him. 
And as things get darker, our lights will no doubt shine brighter. I want to close, before I close in prayer, with a quote from S.H. Kellogg. How exceedingly comforting this view of Christ for that which, at the best, we don't do so imperfectly and interruptedly. He does in our behalf and with never-failing constancy. This at once perfectly glorifying the Father and also through the virtue of the boundless merit of this consecration, constantly procuring for us daily grace unto life eternal. Jesus Christ the righteous not only lived a righteous life for us so that we now can be made righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous not only died a sacrificial death so that the penalty for our sins were placed on him. Jesus Christ not only rose back to life from the dead in the resurrection, proving that sin had been taken care of, sin had been defeated, death had been defeated, and it gives us great hope of our own resurrection one day. He also has ascended to his Father on high and ever lives to make intercession for us. As we are called to remembrance for the Lord's table, Christ, what Christ has done for us, moment by moment, God is called to remembrance what Christ has done for us, what was his plan, the heart of the Father, the love of the Father for us, the love of the Son for us, the love of the Holy Spirit for us, that before he ever created anything, they planned our redemption in time because of their great love for us. The Father loves us. He is for us. And he continually proves that each and every day in each one of our lives. What an amazing thing to have Jesus Christ our advocate always there by the Father, showing him the nails in his hands and in his feet. The, the payment has been paid in full, and we can be righteous because of it. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the grain offering, this offering of thanksgiving to you for all that you are and all that you have done. Father, you do not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because you love us. And we are so thankful that even back here with Old Testament Israel and this grain offering, you reveal to us your daily provision through bread, our daily bread, but also your everlasting provision through the bread of life. Because of Jesus Christ, we can not only have life and life more abundant in the here and now, but we can have eternal life because the eternal bread of life has been sacrificed on our behalf. What thanksgiving this should elicit from us what trust this should produce in us. But Father, each day as we go about our day, that we know that you are with us, that you love us, you are transforming us, you are making us more like you, and that we can go about sharing that with others, sharing your holiness, your righteousness, your love, your care, your compassion, your kindness, your gentleness, your goodness, your truth, your love with all those in our sphere of influence. Make us a grateful people, Father. We have so much to be thankful for. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.